0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: BT Sport Pods.
2: Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and by David Priest, The coach and columnist I've been to see Chris Wilder Watford's third manager of the season Roy Hodgson is another football fireman at the age of 75 he's back at Crystal Palace it begs the question Adrian is this a feel-good story or an admission of failure
3: I think it is an admission of failure of sorts. I, I do think it's a, a slight embarrassment, if I'm honest, uh, on Crystal Palace's part, because they made a conscious decision as a club to move away from the type of football that, that Roy Hodgson was delivering for the team, to go for a younger, more progressive coach that, that that wanted more possession of the ball and to and to play in a slightly more attack-minded way, and at the first sign of trouble. They've U-turned on that, haven't they? And come back to, to someone familiar. And I can't see it as a feel-good story, if I'm honest, because Roy Roy went out on a, not on a high, but, but he went out in a, in a relatively okay way. He's of a certain age. I think he was almost looking forward to retirement. And um, yeah, I don't think he could turn down the opportunity to come back, but it doesn't sit quite right. I, I think Crystal Palace have made a panicky decision and that Patrick Vieira would absolutely have kept them up. That's that's my honest opinion. I think that Roy
2: will keep them up, but but there's no need for the change. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you. On a wider point, David, so many clubs, and Palace seem to be among them, sack their manager without any real clear plan, succession plan. And when you think about it, isn't that meant to be the role of a, a sporting director? And other clubs are doing it, very effectively, you, you think of Brighton, they scout coaches. So, why, you know, with all the resources that are put into scouting players, don't more clubs get more intelligence about potential managers?
0: Yeah, all the talk over the last few years have been the models of clubs that have had their relative successes, like Brighton and Brentford, like you mentioned. It seems remiss of, of clubs not to. To have a process like that and it and eventually it just catches up with you. You've seen at the clubs at the bottom of the, the division. In say that South likes of Southampton, the Southampton Leeds, they perhaps seem to be more forward thinking, yet they still haven't got it right because they've still had to, to go with plan B's and sort of emergency um options. And I just think that it does it just lacks imagination, lacks planning, lacks forward thinking, linear joined up thinking, whatever you want to call it. It is. It's a panic. Uh, it's a it's a panic option for them, and and really, it's probably unfair on Roy, to be honest. Because one, he like you said, he probably didn't didn't think he was he was ever going to come back in a football. Even though that somebody like Roy Hodgson, they never really want to retire. If they did have an option, he would never retire. And yeah, for a few games, is it the best option? If that's the case, then there's some problems at Crystal Palace in in the way that they work.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a reflection also of the pressures on clubs to stay in that Premier League, isn't it? You know, think about it. Is it four points cover the bottom nine?
3: Yeah. Oh, it's really tight this year and a lot of teams are getting very, very nervous and, and Steve Parrish was probably thinking we'll be fine and on the back of, you know, a pretty long winless streak he has panicked the bottom line is that Patrick Vieira had them well organised. They weren't as exciting to watch this season. Nowhere near it. They were great last year. Aggressive, positive, attack-minded. They took the fight to the opposition. think Conor Gallagher made a huge difference. Then what happened is that they didn't really back Patrick in the transfer market. They didn't give him the funds to replace Gallagher. And he himself also regressed a little bit. He went into safety mode and, and he might regret that. But the bottom line is they weren't conceding goals under him. I think a maximum of, of one in most of the the last 10 games of his tenure, they just weren't scoring enough. Now, when you're not scoring enough but keeping clean sheets, is, is Roy Hodgson the, the most automatic choice that you would go to? I, I don't think so. I mean, he'll certainly retain the organisation, but he's not known as an attack-minded coach, is he so... It's a strange one on, on a lot of levels. It makes me wonder whether there was more of a flare-up or maybe an argument, something happened, where it was a quick parting of the ways that nobody really expected, because that's the only thing that makes sense to me, for them to, to not have something else
2: in mind. Mm. Well, speaking of flare-ups, Tottenham, Antonio Conte. Look, for the purposes of this conversation, we'll assume that he's gone. It does seem that. They're just sorting out compensation, uh, which might be an interesting process involving Daniel Levy. On a wider level, David, well, both of you really, what's the impact on the dressing room when you get that, you know, arguably justified criticism of players and it's so overt? Do you think senior players will have their roots into the boardroom to make their feelings known or, or maybe even their agents getting a bit busy?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. It, it, whether it's a direct channel or indirect channel, that's that's not exactly what's what, or in particular what I think, but it's it's obviously what's happened in the past as well. You know, Spurs have got form for this, and we can only go so far and go so long when it's you know all these managers who racked up so many trophies in the past come there and fail, and it, and I, I say a fail in inverted commas simply because. Aren't Spurs where they're supposed to be? They're not supposed to, to be, um, you know, if, if you put them in with with regards to the financial situation of clubs, they're not supposed to be one or first or second. To be fourth place in the Premier League is where they are. Now, of course, on top of that, fans will say, well, that's acceptable if the football is attractive or we're at least going to trying to win the Cups, winning Cup Finals and, and winning Cups. Then it's more acceptable because... I think it's probably just a case of, especially at Spurs, this has gone so long. Where apart from the Pochettino era, when he gave them a fighting chance, he got them into the Champions League Cup final. That's exceeding expectations. That's exceeding what they was expected of them. And I think that, yeah, all the furor around players not being happy, fans not being happy, it's a case of well, where do they expect the club to be?
2: Mm. because you know when we look at it should there be more scrutiny on the ownership Adrian there was a really popular stat this week in 20 years Daniel Levy has hired 10 permanent coaches now between them they've won 61 trophies before and after they joined Spurs when they were at Spurs between them they won only one trophy That's a pretty damning stat, isn't it? It really is. It really is. It's a a
3: shocker of a stat, isn't it? And it does does reflect as an issue in terms of football intelligence at board level and and, and in terms of the direction that they've wanted to go. They've gone for... They've tried to go for serial winners, haven't they, in terms of, of Jose Mourinho and Antonio Conte. But they knew what they were getting into bed with, didn't they, in terms of them being quite explosive characters and that the football wasn't good. So when you're not winning trophies and the football's not good, things are going to go pear-shaped very quickly. That shows that they've not really planned for the future. They're, they're just looking to get a trophy <laughs> just like that and we'll worry about what we want to look like moving forwards. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the recruitment's been shocking. You know, They, they have spent an awful lot of money. An awful lot, not, not as much as Manchester United or a Liverpool or a City, but but they've still spent loads. And you look at the quality of their defence, for example, and, and also potentially the central midfield as well, and you think, well, they've wasted an awful lot of money on, on poor recruitment there. So it's getting the right people in charge. But if you're in charge of recruitment but the club has a sort of hire and fire policy of getting short-term coaches in. What what can you build? So it's, yeah, they, they need to have a root and branch sort of reboot, don't they, Spurs? I think they have to start again, which is why I actually am a little bit sceptical about, about Pochettino returning. That's
2: the logical thing though, isn't it? When you think about it, he knows the club, he's popular there. He has a track record of inspiring, specifically younger players,
3: but Why do you remember, remember that...
2: how unhappy he was when he left? Yeah. I mean, he was hating it. I mean,
3: he bore the look of an incredibly frustrated man having to work with the hierarchy there.
2: Yeah. It wasn't all sweetness and light. That's fair enough. But, um, okay, look at the alternatives, David. Luis Enrique's been mentioned. You've got great pedigree. But, again, that'll be a restart, won't it?
0: Yeah. And we'll go back to the Crystal Palace and Vieira and Hodgson debacle. If you want to call it a debacle, it's the fact that there's no sort of there's there's no real linear thinking behind it. Now, you look at the last few managers, um, Mourinho, Nuno Espirito Santo, Conte, similar types of characters, similar types, but it, like it's it just for Spurs, it, it doesn't seem a good fit. For the fans, it doesn't seem a good fit. For the, the history of the club, it doesn't seem a good fit. And for the future of the club, it doesn't seem a good fit. It's a case of just instead of bringing a manager and resetting, the club needs to reset itself at board level. And certainly it's a, it's a hierarchy in the uh, the football's department's level because there has to be a sort of a vision. And at the moment, like you've said, it, it's it's short-termism. And we'll go and talk about that as well. But it just typifies modern football, doesn't
2: it? It does. You know, panic isn't confined just to the English game. You look at Seville... Manchester United's opponents in the quarterfinals of the Europa League, they've just sacked Sampaioli. However, one thing that does come through in England is this sort of thirst for and love of the high-profile fireman manager. Is that a symptom, Adrian, you think, of the modern game? Yes, become one, hasn't it? Because of what's at
3: stake, really, in terms of promotion and relegation, there's so much money in the Premier League that That is what drives these decisions Quite often It is just that the thought The prospect Of missing out On that big windfall if, you, if you're falling away from a promotion battle Or losing the big cash Because you're in the midst of a relegation battle They just think These owners that We need a short sharp shock Bring in a big name That can just get us over the line and then we'll think further down the line about what we want to look like as a team, as a club moving moving forward. To be honest, I understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do understand it because fireman managers can have a really good effect, can't they? We've seen it many, many times. So, yeah, it's, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a different thing.
2: Mm. Well, Chris Wilder is Watford's third manager of the season. Uh, he has form... As a club builder, but his latest job has brutal clarity. Secure promotion against the odds, and the rest will take care of itself. Welcome, Chris. I've been trying to explore uh, the mindset of the modern manager in this series. Now, it's become obvious during the course of that that the best managers and coaches are naturally reflective, they're almost obsessive in in self education. Now you spent five months out before coming here. In that time, what did you do to be better when the
1: opportunity came up again? From a reflection point of view, you know that process is right the way through your career, and more more importantly, as a coach and a manager, reflecting on previous training sessions, previous you know games, parts of games, games, periods, seasons. So I've always been one to look in the mirror more than look out the window, if that makes sense. So you know, learning what sort of the situation happened, could I've done anything better? at my previous clubs, it was obviously disappointing the last time out, is was the first time I had my contract terminated in over 20 years, so it was not a regular feeling that I had. Um, Did that hurt? And Yeah, and still took pride in that, you know, and uh, I'm not a serial job hunter or job hopper as well, the clubs that I've had, you know, I'm proud and satisfied in terms of the journey that I've been on is all different journeys to get to elite coaching and management in England, so stroke championship and Premier League. So the pathway I've been on from you know starting off at, as a player manager, even that those first sort of 27 games as a player manager, dealing with players and then dealing with players at Halifax, onto Oxford, into Northampton, onto Sheffield United, and into Middlesbrough. So you know not sort of 10, 15 clubs in there. I'm quite surprised you you call me a modern manager because I think that at at times you get get tagged maybe because of where I come from, because of Mm. my accent, because of my background. As an old school manager, I have got old school manager attributes and uh, non-negotiables, but I look at the young modern manager as well and they need the old school Mm. non-negotiables because that is about your dedication to your job, how much hard work you put into it, how you compete, and then obviously from the modern point of view, I like to think that sort of through those sort of 20 years to get the relative success that I've got, you have to keep your finger on the pulse in the way, Hmm. the ever-changing way of the game, Hmm. which which we all know is changing and changing pretty quickly. And if you want to survive or succeed, You've got to adjust and adapt, and I've always thought that I'd like to think that I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. Because mm. in many ways Watford, this club, is a unique environment in
2: terms of the model. Let's be polite and say it's not actually predicated on managerial longevity or even autonomy, really. Knowing that, as we all do, what were the factors that
1: pushed you towards here? There was a few, first of all, to get back into work, I had a couple of opportunities to go back into work, but you know, I, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't about length of contract, it wasn't about from a financial point of view. I got offered a couple of jobs longer term. I got offered a couple of jobs shorter term. But I think just sort of the getting back to work at a decent level, which obviously is at championship level, getting to work with a group of players that are undoubtedly are talented, and as well from a learning and education point of view coming to work in a different environment that maybe I've been used to before at uh, my previous clubs, you know. I didn't see it as anything other from anything negative in terms of taking this challenge up for nine games and in that nine games looking round and and learning and getting a feel of of what happens at a club of this type and the process of, of, of everything and how it all works. Because mm. in a sense, do you think that now, I'm not saying this
2: in a disparaging way, but almost the the fireman. You know, you can be called a fireman for coming in here for 10, 12 games, whatever it will be. Is that going to be a more common thing in football now? Because financially, the rewards, either for staying in the league or getting
1: into the league, are so huge. The sort of job you're doing here, is that going to become more commonplace, you think? I think every ninety-nine point nine percent of managers would say that they want time. Everybody needs to be patient. And they want longevity on it. But the game is changing without a shadow of a doubt. I think I was the eleventh or twelfth manager to have his contract terminated, and I think that was around ten games in in the championship. And obviously, since then, there's more guys have gone. So. Uh, that might be the way that the game's going and everybody accepts that and as i said at the start i think everybody would love you know you know let's be patient and let's do this let's do that but i think especially in the championship i would say there was four clubs four or five clubs at the start of the season that would say if we can remain a championship club that would be success that would be relative success and i think obviously off the back of that 18 championship clubs would have a desire and a belief that it's their year and they would can push to get into the playoffs and get out of the division and that's obviously on top of the teams that have come down with parachute payments the teams are still getting parachute payments so it's such a difficult gig and owners make those decisions so if they make those decisions you know that's part and parcel of the game You, you understand what the game is about and and these things can happen, especially at Championship and Premier League level.
2: Mm. So if this is a slightly new environment. It's still the same old story. You walk in as a new manager into your dressing room for the first time. You got 25 pairs of eyes drilling a hole in your forehead. You know that they've all been on to Chef you, and they've all been on to their mates at Borough, what's he like,
1: <laughs> right?
2: All that stuff. How do you make an immediate impact? Because when you come into a job in these circumstances, you have to make that immediate impact, don't you?
1: Of course, yeah, there'd be phone calls going around and I'm an honest guy, I'm a fair guy. So there's always big decisions and decisions that aren't always popular. So I don't think you're ever going to win a popularity contest as a football manager, because that's just the way it is. But I think one thing that I've always done is respected players. And I think that I've been shown that respect the other way, so in contact with uh, uh, a whole host of players that I've managed right away through my career. So, honesty is the key. And in terms of then, you're looking at the messages that you give the players as soon as you stand in front of them. And then you have to go on, out on the grass and put, put that into practice in terms of what you want it to look like. What do I want it to look like? And my coaching staff, listen, it's the first messages and I should imagine when I start going on one, which I have previous on, that may be, in the culture of the change room at Watford, it was a little bit different to the culture in the change room at Sheffield United, where Billy Sharp knew what I was on about, and Chris Basham and and Paul Coutts and John Flake knew what I was on about. All of a sudden, I'm dealing with you know foreign internationals and young guys that that maybe aren't as as well. I noticed there was a lot, <laughs> I noticed there was a line you came up with after after you lost your first game, where it was, "I'll talk, you listen." Well, listen, it, it's not a I think once you start building that rapport up with players, you know, and you know, it's not like I said, it's you ask for their opinions. Of course, there's always different ways of of learning, Q and A, and you know, all different guided ways of that you try and get your message over. Whether it's in an auditorium, whether it's a one to one, or whether it's out on the on the pitch in terms of what you're trying to Mm. get them to, uh, because it's a team, and you've got to put these boys into a team formation and team system. So they need you you need them they need their fellow players their fellow players need them as well so yeah it's it's not easy um, especially when you've been out of work for 5 months but it is as basic as getting back on the bike and uh, I've really enjoyed my time so far and uh, looking forward to, to hopefully a successful last last quarter of the season but um, certainly you know different in terms of getting your message over to these players and that was what I was talking about in terms of the learning process You know, going forward, you know, if I wanted to manage abroad, if I I was going to manage a club which runs in a similar way to Watford, then I've got experience about it. So there was, as I said at the start, there was no, never felt as if there was a downside to taking this opportunity. Mm. You know, I've I've heard you talk in the past about uh, Sir Alex. And, you
2: know, there's a, a man, a huge figure who defined his club, he defined his era. Yeah, he didn't have to work with a sporting director, did he? If you look at it logically, taking away clubs, and the identity of the clubs and, the, and everything else, logically, it's an area of potential friction between a manager who wants to manage and a club that wants to operate in a slightly distinctive fashion. Let's put it like that. Do you think
1: that's something that you've got to come to terms with here? Well, I knew what the model was, and I knew that you know that I would not be involved in recruitment, I would not be involved in anything else longer term because you know, pretty simplistic. I'm here to the end of the season, yeah. and uh, and then you know, whatever happens at the end of the season happens at the end of the season. First of all, Sir Alex still had to work with with people above him, mm. you know, owners and CEOs. So David Gill and people like yeah, that. David, yeah, David Gill and 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 recruitment and you know academies and whatever and. And for me, he, he will be always, in my eyes, the greatest because of the way he's changed as well. Because I think if you look back, you know, to, a, and I should imagine the younger listeners to this will not remember this, but there was a, it was once a, an incredible cup final. I think Rangers were playing Aberdeen, and I think Aberdeen beat Rangers. And at, at the end, there was an interview with him on the pitch, and they just won a, a major cup final, and he absolutely slaughtered the players. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, I'm not sure he'd be able to get away with that now, and I know that you have to change. The managers I look at now and go, I really admire your your body of work, and I admire the body of work of Mikel Arteta, Pep, Jurgen Klopp, Eddie Howe. You know, these guys, they're managers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Tenag has gone into onto Manchester United and he knows this this is an organisation, a massive organisation, worldwide organisation that will have sporting directors and technical directors. But he plays a part working with. Mm. And that's always the theme for me is is working with people. Sure, yeah, I do. If you're being asked to put a team together, you know what attributes you feel the team needs to show, of course, through your experience and how you yeah again, how you want it to look like. You have to have your say on that mm. um but certainly it's never you know it's never been a, a, an issue with me working with ceos and owners and sporting directors as long as we're all on the same page mm. and there's a there is a pathway of, of how we're going to go go and do it and, and carry it out and if i can add myself and my coaches and my video analysis guy there's a whole host of experience there. So if we can help, if we can help save the club money by not going down a route with a player that we don't think is going to be beneficial or will grow with the club, you know, am I going to say, well, yeah, let's go and buy him for, for, for five or 10 million pound and then he doesn't play? Or do we look at somebody that, that might be able to get for one and a half, two million that might be able to turn into that five or 10 million pound because we know as well, and as well, the experience of the networking and the experience that we have in terms of the connections that we, that we all have built up through our careers of old school, picking the phone up to Mikel Arteta. What's this player like? Is he for me or is he not for me? Knowing that you'll get an honest answer off the back of that. So mm. working with people is the biggest, is the biggest thing. Because the, th- the three coaches that you mentioned there, Mikel, Pep, Jürgen Klopp,
2: They've all been on on this podcast. It was quite interesting, the the similarities between them, almost like on a human level, right? Mikel spoke of how Pep prepared him for the loneliness of leadership. Pep talked about how key his relationship with uh, Manuel Estiate, the former water polo coach, Mm. who essentially, and I'm using Pep's description is his life coach. Mm. Whereas Jürgen was saying, well, I would be going mad in a chair at home if it wasn't for my missus. Mm-hmm. So they all had touchstones, right? Mm. Who is your touchstone that you go to for
1: unequivocal advice? It's not, like I said, it's not an open debate where you go and, and speak to 20, 25 people, but there's, there's family members, there's my wife, definitely. So I can see that with Jürgen, there's people in the game. There's people I work with for a long time in terms of, you know, Alan Nill, who I've known since I was 15 and 16 and worked closely with. There's people that I've built up relationships with that I will pick the phone up for certain situations and certain issues, who will I know will give me the straight down the down the line and, uh, an honest answer. So so in terms of I totally understand why they would, because as you've said in terms of a manager's job—it can be quite lonely out there, and it, you know, and it can't be you know st- stuck in that technical area when you're 3 0 down after twenty, twenty-five minutes, and you know, it's it's, it's, it's all on your toes. But I'm very inclusive of the people that I work with and and and, and trust. So mm. knowing that through experience and, and relationships, but but certainly her indoors comes to mind all the time because I know that I know what I'm going to get and I'm going to get that, that honest answer. And I think that's, that's brilliant that Jürgen has, has said that and uh, I, can, I can definitely relate to that. because mm. so, you know, As you said earlier on, managers are getting less and
2: less time to build a team. Speaking with James Milner last week, who is one of those players that you look at and you think, yeah, that's a coach or that's a manager in the making and we were discussing almost the barriers to actually going into the job. In other words, the madness that can surround it. Do you think the
1: environment in football now is putting off people from going into coaching and management? It shouldn't because you should have that. If you want to be a manager, you've got to have, a, first of all, desire and a belief in your, your ability. So I imagine James has got that through an unbelievable playing career. Mm. And he'll know how good he is as a coach and he'll know what his skills are as well. So, you have to experience it as well. So, you know, you have to go through the process of going on, you, on, your, on your badges. And I know a lot of senior players think they're a waste of time, but it's still getting out there and, and learning and speaking and, and being in front of people and all different topics that you have to go through to gain your, your awards. It shouldn't be. As I said, there's all different pathways, whether you've been a top international player like James Milner or you've played you look at like I say a pathway of myself played in all four divisions majority of football played in second and third division of the tier managed outside the the pyramid and forced my way in and and got myself up and I'm proud of how I've done that and others the other way it really shouldn't because of what do you do it for and the understanding of the consequences if and sometimes the consequences are out of your hands as well, you know majority of the time you are in control of your future, sometimes you're not, uh, and you have to accept that 's just the game it is, but I think generally if you the love of the game, your thirst for competition and staying in the environment really should keep you relevant and you should keep you wanting to be involved in it because there's all People see that bit at, at three o'clock to five o'clock, and every, you know, I'm not saying everybody understands it, but a lot of majority of people know there's a lot more to it than just that little bit at three till five o'clock. Everything, and, and at times, really, it's just dealing with people and managing people. Mm. Really, it's as sim- simplistic as that. Yeah. Final point then what would success look like for you here this season? Well, I would say that really narrowing it down to winning games of football. You know, I've I'm, I'm not been asked to come in and build, which I've done at previous clubs. I've not been asked to get involved in recruitment or academy or other things, which I do believe managers should be. Yeah, of course, it's, you know, you, you've, you've got to delegate and you've got to micromanage and all stuff like that, but Tenog deals with the Rashford situation, deals with the Ronaldo situation, deals with Bruno Fernandes situation, looks at the 23s and says, I want a, a say in who I'm going to mm. play in that. Why not? Why, why shouldn't you? Because you're being asked to forge the future of the football club. I'm not being asked to do that. I've been asked to come in, look at the group, myself and the coaches, try and put a bit of structure to them in the way, not being... Um, Negative or confrontational about what's happened before. Try and put your stamp on these last eleven games, and try and win a clutch of football matches that might take you into into the playoffs. So, um, everything's crystal clear, clarity on that for me. And when that opportunity come up, I knew it was going to be like that. And all, all my efforts and my coaching staff efforts are into to win as many games of football between now and the end of the season. Uh, and as I said, I'm, I'm not building, but I think it's a great opportunity for myself. I feel as if it's a good fit both ways. The club have made the decision, they've brought me in, and I'm, I'm delighted and thankful for that opportunity. And hopefully I can help the players, the talented players here, getting the results to to make it an interesting last six weeks of the season. Hmm. Well, thanks for your time no and all the best. Right, enjoyed it. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you,
2: mate. So David, Chris has got a very clear remit there. But are you surprised that he went into the job? Because you know, Watford have lost a lot of credibility in the way they, they handle managers.
0: Yeah, they have. But it's it's the profile of the job. It's probably the highest pro, profile job that he was going to get at this moment in time. But at the same, the same time, I think that I'm not 100% whether Chris thinks this, but it almost feels like, you know, a manager gets a... Um, uh, gets hold of a troublesome player that nobody else has been able to, uh, to solve. Nobody else will be able to get the best out of them. And he's, he's thinking, I, I can get him right. I can get him on the right track. It almost seems that sort of situation where like, he thinks he, he can go in there. I can deal with the owners. I can deal with everything that's uh, going on the, um, the club. I can make this work. And yeah, you've got to have that belief when you're going to any job, really. But certainly when you go into Watford, you have to have that. And But at the same time, uh, you know, we talk about how players approach this short-termism. How they, you know, how how can they be galvanised in such short space of time? When my experience of being in that situation, when you know that either that the manager's got as a finite time, or he announces that he's leaving it in the end of the season or something like that, it's so difficult for for the squad to be galvanised then because the players who are playing it's fine for them. Everyone on the outside is just waiting for the next manager to come in rather than you know, doing everything they possibly can. So there's problems like that will always arise when um, clubs like Wofford's have this process and do things the way they do it.
2: Yeah, well, doesn't, again, beg that question, Adrian, that dressing room culture will be the decisive factor here. Because, you know, some players in that dressing room would probably have been through four, five, six managers. You know, meet the new boss, same as the old
3: boss. Yeah, and some would have liked them, some wouldn't have liked them. It's a, it is a very strange situation. It must be must be difficult to be a Watford player. I think Dave is right. I think if you find a manager that you really like, and then and then they're off, it, it can be quite disheartening. And you you then think, well, am I going to be here? How much how much longer am I going to be here? I think, yeah, it's um, that feeling, that sense of belonging doesn't really exist at Watford, does it? And and I think that that might hold them back or it has held them back a little bit. I mean, they have got promoted playing this way, haven't they? By hiring and firing and players have adapted to it. But it's a strange situation. I just think Chris Wilder needs buy-in between now and the end of the season. If what he says is welcomed by the majority of the players and they want to listen to him and they want to, you know, fulfil his instructions, Watford will be fine. But if you know if half the dressing room aren't really into it into what he's saying then then they're done for and th- and this will be a forgettable spell and Chris will have to start again elsewhere so, you know sometime soon so yeah it's um yeah it could go one or two ways this um, but i wish him luck i like i like chris wilder i think he's a very very good coach and you know in a sense i think he's quite unlucky to find himself in this position where he's having to take on a job like this a couple of years ago he would have been you know, in the in a position that Thomas Frank is in now, where you're you're being linked with with really really big clubs, and uh, yeah, it's um he's had a bit of misfortune, I think,
2: Chris. Mm. Well, lest we forget, he was the LMA Manager of the Year, wasn't he? Which is you know some accomplishment. David, do you expect Watford to make up that lost ground or fall short? They're they're tenth at the moment, uh, five points short of sixth place with eight games left? I think it's going to be very
0: difficult for them. And you see that what other clubs have already created, you know, you, you've got Rob Edwards at, at Luton, who's, who's went in there and, and done fast, fantastically well, carried on the work that Nathan Jones did. Gary at, at Millwall, who's year on year, he's, he's improved Millwall and got in a really competitive position. You've still got Sunderland who, who's still in the round there if they can string another few decent results together. So I, I think he's up against it, to be honest with you, especially in the short space of time to try and create something that's that's going to have a big effect when other clubs who perhaps don't have as good a squad or perhaps a, not as experienced manager as Chris, but they, they've they just got a head start on him. And, and I think it's going to be really, really
1: difficult.
2: Mm. Because you know, one of the factors is, is the whole idea of parachute payments. You've got to make use of those while they're available to you. Does that mean that the Watfords, Norwich, you know, Burnley, we can we can probably assume are going to be champions? They've got to bounce back as soon as possible, if not immediately.
3: It feels that way, doesn't it? And if you don't, then you have to start again and you have to go up the old fashioned way, which is through excellent coaching and great recruitment and, and for, you know if you don't have the you can get promoted without parachute payments we've we've seen that with various clubs down the years Forrest obviously a great example of that last season with Steve Cooper got the right man in he built an excellent team so it is it is possible but this is their best chance the thing is Watford have a squad I would say that contains five, six, seven players that think they're Premier League players whether they are is you know in their own heads they think they are, yeah. I'd say some of them are, some of them aren't, but they believe that they belong at a higher level. They won't stick around for for another year in the championship. So, so if they don't make it this year, there will be a big change in, in personnel. And maybe that that might not be the worst thing in the world to happen to Watford. But yeah, there'll they'll be a they'll lose a lot of their best players if they don't go up this
2: this summer for sure. Mm, the flip side of it, David. And forgive my ignorance, I'm not sure whether you've been in this situation before. You know, Wigan, who drew at Watford last Saturday, they're not paying staff and players again. They were docked three points, now bottom of the league, probably going down. What impact does all that have, not just on the players, but the families of the players? Yeah, just breeds insecurity.
0: Yeah, I have been in that position at, at clubs and sort of and the clubs I've coached that way. Having to address the players before training um, and and give them updates about what's happening and when perhaps project the payments are going to be paid and it's it just shifts the focus away from what you're trying to do and they, they've got a hard enough job as it is at the moment. Sean Maloney's went in there; there's been improvements, but as a young manager, you, you you don't want to be dealing with this. Any manager doesn't want to be dealing with it, but it's like I said, it, it just shifts the focus away from the football and what you're trying to do and. And also, it it gives people excuses as well for for lack of for if the performances aren't there as well. Which I mean, it rightly so, it's it's justified. And okay, this is it. Probably isn't the case where you know, in League One or League Two, when you know, people are really being affected financially. You know, the guys at, w- at Wigan can probably take the hit, but at the same time, they're not. These lads are multi-millionaires. They're not. They're not going to be able to take the hit for long. It's unsettling for everybody, and certainly for, for people who aren't in football and just remove like your, your, your wives and, and, and sort of um, and partners. It's so unsettling for them because they, they, sometimes when you're in football, you think you, you handle things better. You think you know what can happen, you know everything that's going on. I think it's just the, the insecurity and not knowing, not being in football.
3: It can lead to even great insecurity because then they just think, well, is as Marsman as going to have a job at the end of the season? Yeah, and, and you think, I want to be somewhere else. Why would you want to be somewhere where you can't guarantee you're going to get your money at the end of the month? It's Yeah, it happened to me a couple of times. South End, <laughs> surprise, surprise at South End. they <laughs> got a long history of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it happened for, for a while at, at Margate as well when I was the captain and I had to sort of, yeah, liaise a little bit with the players and the management over, you know, it's going to be all right you know it's it's just yeah it doesn't get players fighting for the badge does it when, when this kind of thing's happening you just automatically think well where else can I play because yeah it, it, this isn't
2: this isn't for me mm. Adrian do you think the gap between the Championship and the Premier League is getting wider you know you look at Burnley's hammering by Manchester City in the FA Cup was that telling since you know as I mentioned earlier they're likely to be champions by a comfortable margin I think you can park that result, actually, a little bit.
3: I mean, Man City probably would have thrashed many, many Premier League teams by a similar margin in, the, in that game. So, yeah, I would detach yourself from that. In general, I think this is a weak championship, which is why Burnley are so far ahead. I mean, they they've been outstanding, but yeah, the rest are quite average. Is it getting wider? I think it probably is. Yeah, I think it probably is. Look at what Forrest did. Steve Cooper, very proud of his players. He felt he had to change almost everybody. That The exception of Fulham, aren't they? Fulham have added, but really it's through good coaching and, 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 a, and a really positive culture and mentality that they've been able to thrive at the top level. Brentford, of course, have done something similar under Thomas Frank. So it, Yeah, it isn't automatic that that a team that comes up is going to go straight back down and get hammered every week. And I don't think Burnley will next season. I think Burnley will. I think Burnley are genuinely as good as a mid-table team in in the Premier League. It was just one of those days, that one. But look, did you watch the Sheffield United-Blackburn cup tie? That was a great game. Absolutely stunning match. Thrilling, good standard, high tempo. That showed me that it's, it's not a bad level still.
2: Mm. Well, Sheffield United, West Brom, they're in their second seasons after relegation. So you can expect them to come on strong as the season reaches its climax. David, you've got your finger on a pulse in the North East. Um, what about Middlesbrough and the Michael Carrick factor? Well, that's just been
0: incredible, hasn't it? From the moment he's walked through the door, he's just had an immediate effect and say exactly what you want for somebody who's you manage your manager, first job. I think there's just so much positivity around him, and and again, you know, going back to to what we're talking about about the championship and uh, about a bit how competitive and and things are. As good as the Premier League has become, a good product, it's it's been in danger of of making a basket case out of the championship. You look at all the even the top two now under transfer embargoes. Sheffield United rumours of you know going into administration. People like Reading uh, who've had embargoes this season, point talking about points deductions. It, it's incredible for like such a well-supported second tier. There's high attendances that clubs are in this uh final situation. So it's leaping back forward to Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough's one of the good clubs that one of the the few clubs in the division that seemed to be run intelligently, sensibly by owner who's got the, the club's best interest at heart. And for me. Whoever's in charge at Middlesbrough, the strength will always be Steve Gibson. But at the moment, he's got it right. He's, he's dropped really right on Michael Carrick. And they're playing some great football as well. They seem to have everything. And they've got a lot of momentum going with them as well. So I wouldn't bat against them and be promoting the, in the playoffs at all.
2: Yeah. You mentioned Fulham earlier, Adrian. You know, they are excelling after promotion. Now they face losing Alexandra Mitrovic. For the rest of the season, after pushing the referee Chris Kavanagh, at Old Trafford, I'm not sure—is that a punishment to fit the crime? In terms of just having the red card and the and a no, you know, ban? you're talking about ten, eleven-game bans. You know, get rid of him for the rest of the season. Not in my opinion. It,
3: yeah, I, look, you shouldn't do it, and I, I think it should be more than a more than a three because, yeah, a three-game ban. For violent conduct is is fair enough. Is this violent conduct? It is of sorts, I suppose. But but the referee the referee shouldn't be touched. I think that and you've got to you've got to put a marker down and warn players that this is unacceptable. So I would extend it maybe to four or five. But I think talk of ten or six months is it, way beyond what it was. If if I'm honest, what I would prefer to see is the PGMOL just laid and the FA just lay down a, a very clear rule that if you you get, you know, up in the in the face of a referee, it's an automatic yellow card. If you surround a referee in the way that people are, then everyone gets the yellow. You know, if you've got four around them and they're breathing you know, they're breathing on him, it's like right, all of you. And and it, it would stop it it will stop it because anyone on a yellow car wouldn't wouldn't dream of doing that. That's the change I would rather make rather than single out Mitrovic because even though it was a daft thing to do and, and not a very pleasant thing to do, I don't think he deserves to, to be ostracised for that length of time. That's my, my
2: opinion. Mm, yeah, well, to be honest, I probably agree with you, but I also understand the counter-argument that when we tolerate or seem to be tolerating that type of behaviour in a high profile match, it immediately rebounds to the grassroots. But two we didn't things tolerate it, really, he
3: got sent off, didn't he? And and he will get banned. So we're not tolerating that.
2: Yeah, but I do think there needs to be perhaps a stronger message. You know, yeah, I, I yeah. I'm with you. I'd I'd say like four, four to five games, something like that. But David, that wider issue, two things really, do you think that the crowding that Adrian spoke about is is actually becoming almost strategic and pre-planned. You know, we're seeing it around penalties, aren't we? You know, there's always a, a crowd scene around a penalty. And would one solution be only captains can protest?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't know what's happened to all this, you know. Uh, in the past, there's, there's been measures taken, you know. We we, we spoke about, um, see like Man United and Arsenal uh, games of old when, you know, everyone was around the referee. There's lots of pressure on them. So, and they try to pull back from that. They imagine waving of yellow cards. I don't know what's happened with that. I thought that was a booting offence, but now it's, you see it every game, you know, and it's... And if you're talking about preventative measures, then if you look at the referees and you look at the previous incidents, I know, I'm know i not saying that the, uh, Bruno Fernandes' incident was worthy of a red card, really, to be honest. But if you're talking about preventative measures, if he was red carded, or even... Uh, was he yellow card at the time? I'm not sure it was yellow card. no. no. Don't yeah, he well, was. Even if, he was, if, he, if was. he was yellow carded, that's more preventative measure that, that, that might have stopped the Mitrovic incident happening. But certainly it's just, it, it ends up becoming a circus. And what it actually does, we, we're wanting clarity from referees, we want better decisions, we want better performance from them. So if we do take away all this pressure from them, they are going to make better decisions. You know, if it, it, instead of being chased when they're trying to move away, they make a decision and, and think through the situation and they're being harried all the time. They're not being able to think clearly. If you can allow them just to remove themselves that few seconds, and they are going to make better decisions and we're all going to benefit from it.
3: But you've been a part of the coaching staff, David, and lots of dressing rooms. Has it ever been mentioned in terms of putting pressure on referees? I, I can't remember anyone talking about that from my career. Pro- probably only
0: when it comes to penalty incidents. Trying to, you know, if if you've got a 50-50 decision or, you know, 60-40 decision against you, somebody goes down, then appeal for it. That That's probably the only thing. I mean, it's a bit rich come for me for somebody who's been sent off twice for, for a poacher and the fourth official. <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 Love or, that. Only, only for colourful <laughs>
0: language, not
3: for any aggression, but... Put, put it yeah, but... I can't believe you'd swear, Preecey. I, I, I can't get my head around that. Neither can my mother. He's
2: a sweet, He's a sweetheart. He's then. a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, right. Uh, final point, chaps. Um, the international break. Simple question, really. Is international football losing its attraction outside major finals? Aid. I've always
3: immersed myself in major finals. I love it. I absolutely love international football when there's a big tournament the Euros or the World Cup I've never really got excited about qualifiers I've got to be honest I just I just can't can't really get myself up for it I think it's timing as well I think early on in the season I think it's quite exciting to you know in the October you know late September October I think it's quite an exciting time and it's nice to have little breaks from the Premier League with the busy Christmas schedule coming up and whatnot. but at this stage of the season, just as the title race and the relegation race is absolutely hotting up, we get this break, and it just it just feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels unwanted, and uh, I don't think the players would would particularly welcome it either. And and look, teams at the top and bottom of the division, all they care about right now, fans of England, fans of Scotland, you know, fans of all these nations that they're caring about the clubs as much as they are the, the actual national team at the moment. Please do not get injured. That, that is all they're thinking <laughs> about. Um, and it's it's a shame for, for Gareth. It's a shame for international football. I, I kind of wish this had
2: happened, at, you know, maybe a month ago. Good. So let's look at the other side of the coin, if you like, and the impact on smaller nations. Now, David, you're speaking to us from Montserrat, what's a nice boy like you doing in a place like that?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I'm um, out here in Montserrat for the two nation league games against Haiti and Guyana to assist the new coach Matt Lockwood who's been given responsibility of developing the game over here recruiting fresh bloods in the squad of players with Montserrat heritage and to be as competitive as possible for the next round of World Cup qualifiers starting around 18 months, so I certainly look forward to the experience and whether anyone is excited by this international break, I've been looking forward to this one for more than most, probably. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I think we should do a Montserrat podcast in situ, basically. It's yeah, a bit much broadcasting uh, in, in his swimming trunks. <laughs> it's a bit too much, uh... Yeah, thank the Lord, people. This isn't video. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, uh, to be serious, I'll, I'll, I'll draw everything to a close, really. I've got huge admiration for Gareth Southgate as a man and the culture he's created as England manager is far-sighted and progressive, but I do wonder if fewer people care about the international game these days. This break, as, as Adrian said, it feels like an intrusion. It disrupts the momentum of the club season. Qualifying campaigns, it's more like an unwanted chore. As always, I'm grateful to Adrian and the factor 50 kid, David. their insights. Thanks also to Chris Wilder for proving that hope springs eternal.